ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Bill Hayes is back on Conversations. His new book, Sweat, is a history of exercise. Bill has always been interested in how the human body works. He's written books on anatomy, about the science of sleep and the history of blood. He's also explored the human mind and heart in his writing. Bill wrote a beautiful memoir about his relationship with his late partner, the neurologist and author Oliver Sacks. As well as talking and travelling and sharing bottles of wine on the rooftop of their building, Bill and Oliver used to work out together, swimming and visiting the gym. In Sweat, Bill takes a look at his own experience of exercise and traces the modern obsession with working out back to its origins in the ancient world. Hi, Bill. Hi, Sarah. So good to be here. It's great to have you. You visited a lot of libraries around the world in, in working on this book, Sweat. How did people tend to respond when you told them you were researching <laughs> the subject of exercise? Uh, sometimes with a laugh, sometimes with a question like why or uh, what form of exercise? Um, so it often came as a surprise. Particularly the Europeans, I yes. sense, were not so impressed by the Americans' interest in, in this, this field. It seemed like a very American obsession that I was talking about. Um, but in fact, it does go back to antiquity in ancient Greece and Rome and even, even Renaissance-era Italy, as we will talk about. So, uh, yeah, I did travel all around the world to do research for Sweat. One person who, who took you seriously when it came to the subject was the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What did she tell you about her exercise regime? I did have the pleasure to meet uh, Supreme Justice Ginsburg at a party many years ago. And um, uh, she asked me what I was interested in, what I was working on. I said, I'm working on a book on the history of exercise. And she did not laugh or question me. She said, well you know, what do you do? And um, I told her what my workout routine is. And I turned the question back to her and asked her. And she said uh, a personal trainer had sort of saved her life after a bout with cancer. And she exercised every day. And that she did push-ups every day. She's like, what, in her 80s? She was in her 80s at the time. And a very petite, frail-looking, though not frail, in actuality, person. So I was amazed. I knew how to do push-ups, but push-ups are not easy to do. And, <laughs> no. Um, but she told me how she had learned to do push-ups, starting by just doing them against the wall, uh, standing, and then going to her knees and doing them, and then eventually doing one at a time, just doing one perfect military push-up one day, then doing two the next day, working up to 20 a day. And I was 20 just... 20 a day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was just sort of speechless, and uh, I just had a few minutes with her, but um, I said goodnight, and I said sort of kiddingly, I'm going to go home and do 20 push-ups. And she said, no, 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 you're, you're so young, you can do many more than that. <laughs> I, I think that if RBG tells you that, you got to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I think I went home and did about at least 50. <laughs> Drop and do 50. Your dad was a big influence on you when it came to fitness. He'd mm -hmm. been a paratrooper. What kind of physical training had he received as a young man? Yeah, my dad went to West Point, the military academy in the U.S., and he was a great swimmer. He was captain of the swim team. And uh, 
an athlete. Um, there were six of us. I had five sisters, but I was the only son. And uh, as the only son, sort of got trained almost like a soldier in West Point training what, in every form of exercise. What would he get you doing? What, what did that training involve for well, the young Bill? <laughs> there was shadow boxing in the garage, um, swimming, of course. We all snow skied. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in Spokane, Washington. Uh, water skied, swam, hockey. Um, and then he was the owner of a small Coca-Cola bottling plant in Spokane, something that isn't really around anymore. Um, but he would get free tickets to all different sporting events. And uh, just I, not my five sisters, would get invited to these sporting events. And we went to everything from hockey games to the rodeo to horse races uh, and on and on, football, baseball, basketball. With as much Coke as you could drink? <laughs> With as much Coca-Cola. <laughs> we were the most popular family in my neighborhood. We had a cooler in our basement filled with not just Coca-Cola, but orange crush, grape crush, strawberry crush. Needless to say, I have a lot of cavities. <laughs> we all do. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of soda pop. We called it pop in those days. How did you feel about your dad's emphasis on on exercise and, and I guess competitiveness as, mm -hmm. as a kid? Well, in some ways I loved it and I think it became sort of imprinted in my DNA. You know, as you said, I've written several books dealing with the human body or the history of medicine and science that's always really interested in me. And yet at the same time, it was kind of my way to rebel, to not join the football team in high school, to not join the baseball team, to uh, rebel against my dad, who really was an athlete. Where would your dad take you after church on Sunday? He would take me ritualistically, and only me, again, it's the difference between... As, as a sister with brothers, I'm feeling this pain from <laughs> the other side it. of the story, Well, Bill. we should remind um, the audience that this is the 1960s and 70s and the way at least in my hometown, where girls were raised, was different from boys. And so he would take me to the Spokane Athletic Club, which was a true athletic club like palestras and antiquity with every form of exercise possible. Um, there was a great swimming pool and there was a jogging track and there was a gymnasium with full gymnastics equipment, um, mats for wrestling, I think there was a boxing ring as well. Any women or, or men only? There were women. Women um, were allowed as the wives and daughters of members, but it was pretty much a men's only club. And uh, it was something, you know, was part of uh, how my dad raised me. And what would he do there? What was his favorite form of exercise? Well, his favorite sport really was handball. And he had a, a game, a standing game with another member and neighbor named Dr. Parker. And the two of them would play handball. And I would watch from sort of the stands above the handball court. And I would catch the, the ball when it would go out of court, throw it back. You know, and that really means it's out of bounds. But to me, it was like catching a home run or something. <laughs> what about weights? Was your dad into, into lifting weights? You know, he wasn't so much into lifting weights. I think back on that with some surprise, but I was. You know, I came of age in the 1970s around the time that Arnold Schwarzenegger suddenly 
you know, sort of exploded on Literally the scene. Literally bulging yeah. out of every screen and poster. Yeah. Bodybuilding, that whole, that whole world had really been a subculture and not well known to people until he came onto the scene. Was the, it Pumping Iron? Pumping Iron, the documentary, and there was a book called Pumping Iron as well. And uh, I was a very impressionable 15-year-old right at that age. And I remember asking my parents for a bench to press and a weight set and Arnold, Schwarzen Arnold Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding, <laughs> which actually to this day is still one of the best guides to weightlifting and bodybuilding. Looking at that documentary Pumping Iron, today it seems so incredibly camp, Bill. Like, yeah. was Arnie aware of that? Do you think? Did he play with his appeal to all kinds of people? I think he did. I mean, I think he took it very seriously. He was very competitive, obviously very ambitious. You know, he'd later become a huge movie star, governor of California. He wanted to be the greatest bodybuilder in the world. But I think he had fun with it too and understood that he was appealing not just to fellow bodybuilders but and to women but also to men and that was certainly true he became a kind of gay icon as well and I think he he played with that what did your parents make of this new <laughs> obsession of yours <laughs> I had I was lucky again in my family because as the only boy I got I was the only one who had his own bedroom so I had a bedroom in the basement where I set up this whole weight set and could be heard, heard clanking and lifting weights and dropping weights until late into the night. I don't really know what they thought of it, but I was at that age where I really did develop, really did develop muscles. I, at 47, not, not 15, have only just started lifting weights. It is such a buzz. I mean, I can imagine as a teenager. What did you love about it? I loved that um, you could see the results. You know, you could see your body change. And um, there's a great quote from the Russian scientist Pavlov where he talked about muscular gladness. <laughs> and it was my late partner, Oliver, who told me about that phrase from Pavlov. I probably wouldn't have heard about it otherwise. But I know exactly what Pavlov meant, um, that feeling of muscular gladness. It's not just that you enjoy it mentally or just for the vanity of it or how you look, but your muscles actually feel glad. Your body feels good. Your body feels glad when you exercise. You kind of feel like an animal again that's had a good mm -hmm. run, that's done something physical. Gladness is a, is a perfect term for it. It really is. After college, you moved to San Francisco. How did the city look through your eyes when you first arrived? Mm, wow. That was 1985. I had just come out as a gay man the year before. Um, this was really... At the very height of the AIDS pandemic, you know, I, I think about the fact that I've lived through two pandemics now, the AIDS pandemic and, of course, COVID, and how, both how similar and how different they are. But I moved right into the Castro. A friend of mine from college had a flat, and um, it was in some ways very, very magical and beautiful. San Francisco is a beautiful city, but it was also, you know, a very scary time. Um, this was... Before there was a test for HIV, and certainly before there were effective treatments. Um, so to come out and be active at that time was both, you know, exhilarating, finding your own identity and your own community, but also at a very, very scary time. Was it a, a kind of a situation, Bill, where you'd, you'd see men, you know, not even knowing them, but you might see them in a bar or at mm -hmm. the gym and, and then they'd just not be there? Yeah, they would just disappear. Young men my age or, or younger would die so quickly. And um, the gym itself became a kind of 
community centre or gathering centre for gay men at that time. In what way? Why was the gym important? Because this is a time when bodies are under attack and I guess are frail and, and mm-hmm. vulnerable. How does that fit with the gym and gym culture? I think a couple of reasons. I mean, truly lifting out was healthy and helpful. There was a syndrome that my boyfriend of those years had called wasting syndrome, where the muscles literally wasted. So, you know, doctors recommended that you lifted weights, get as bulked up as possible. Exercise was part of your your treatment plan in a certain way. But also gathering at the gym with other men was important to just maintaining one's sense of hope, but also gathering information. I remember at the gym I went to, which was called Muscle System, and it was like gay men's only gym, there would be flyers for ACT UP meetings or Project Inform meetings. Project Inform shared information about treatment. And then most poignantly, what I remember so well is that there would be announcements for memorials of gym members who had died taped to the front desk. And these were, you know, I was, what, 25, 26. These were young men my own age or maybe older, but people who I'd been working out with for months who who suddenly died. So the gym, building up muscle, looking healthy, it wasn't just about vanity. It was about maintaining your health. And kind of claiming your, your body back from the disease, maybe. Absolutely, yeah. Tell me more about this gym muscle systems. What was it like inside? It was it was great. It was mirror lined, of course. Mirror lined. <laughs> mirror lined. <laughs> so you can see your workout in your body from every angle. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, um, you know, I don't know if they prohibited women, but it was it was clearly known as a gay men's gym. Um, so there's a real sense of camaraderie too and what, fun. And what's so what's so different, of course, is that this was before the internet, before iPhones or phones. So no one was on their phone or gazing into their phone or even had a Walkman or, or music, music on. Was there there music? was music, great music going on the speakers, but not, you know, people with, you know, in their own worlds with headphones on. Um, so there was a real sense of party and of fun and maybe even escape from really the tragedy of the pandemic, too. What do you remember hearing on the speakers? Oh, gosh. Gloria Gaynor and um, Sylvester and all those great disco and other ass, Bronsky beats. <laughs> I mean, they're all just starting to come back to me right now. It was at this gym that you met your then partner, mm-hmm. Steve What was your relationship like? Were you similar kinds of people? I think we were similar. Steve was a little bit younger than me when we met, um, and we did meet at Muscle System. I can still picture it. He was doing um, rows. (laughs) I'm demonstrating. Sarah's laughing. (laughs) And um, he was a tall... I will survive bursting out of the speakers. Yes, yes, I will survive. So appropriate. Um, tall, handsome fellow from New Jersey with a kind of unconventional handsome beauty, like a broken nose, looked like a boxer, kind of had a New Jersey accent, which I just, I was from the Northwest and I just found that so, so sexy. (laughs) But he was also very, um, despite being very handsome, very shy and, um, just a really good, sweet, sweet guy. And he told me on our first date that he was HIV positive. So I knew from the very beginning. And I think he took his first capsule of AZT on our first or second date, which at that time was 
a very new treatment, and a lot of people were against even taking it. They thought it was toxic or poisonous. Um, but Steve probably went through every single available AIDS treatment and experimental AIDS treatment at the time. I was HIV negative, and um, it was unusual at that time. People don't really remember this, but to be part of a mixed status couple, as it was called, was kind of unusual. And I was just starting my writing career, and one of the first things I published was about being in a mixed status relationship. Mm -hmm. um, so I was very open about that from the beginning. And not that my parents were happy about that, but I was always very open in my personal essays about my life. You and Steve were actually at the gym together the night before he died. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. Oh, it's so, so um, sad and so strange even to think about now. Steve and I were together for over 16 years, and he'd gone through so much with his illness, just about every AIDS-related illness one could get, but was really saved by the protease inhibitor cocktail drugs, which came out in the 1990s, and really regained his health and his fitness and was back at the gym and looking great. And, um, you know, at that time, it was a feeling of, we're going to have a long life together. And it was the most ordinary night, Sarah. You, we went to the gym together. Um, came home, we made dinner, watched TV. I remember he made a birthday card for one of my nieces, um, got in bed and, and read as we did every night. I said goodnight first. And then I woke at about 7.30 the next morning to him thrashing in bed next to me, and he was in cardiac arrest. I was had been asleep and was just confused. I thought he was having a nightmare but quickly realized that he wasn't and um, that he was losing consciousness and um, called 911 and began performing CPR and EMTs came and we did get him to the hospital, but he had passed really before we even got him to the hospital. He was 43. The heart attack was not related to AIDS. It was kind of a, and he had no history of heart problems. So it was really a freak, freak tragedy. And and then you're left without this this love and with your life together suddenly uh, upended in the most tragic way. You sat down and, and wrote a list about things that you wanted to do but hadn't. Mm -hmm. And one of the things on that list was to learn to box. <laughs> Why? <Right. laughs> this is not common grief practice, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> I did make a list, a to-do list. Part of it was, very movingly, the day he died, or the day after, I found on his desk a to-do list, which he'd made the night before. I still have it, with very simple things on it, like change the light bulb, go to the grocery store. I keep that list because it's a reminder that your life can change in an instant. You can go to bed with a to-do list on your desk thinking you're going to get up the next day and get all these things done, and then you're gone. So, yes, I did later make a to-do list, more of things that I'd always wanted to do, dreamed of doing. I'd always wanted to get a tattoo. <laughs> so I got a tattoo, and one tattoo led to another, and then to five. You know, it's, <laughs> tattoos can become a bit of an addiction. I went through a phase. Um, I wanted to go to Paris, so I went to Paris, and I wanted to really learn how to box. 
you know, I think part of it deep down, to be really honest, is Steve was my guy and he was a big guy. And even though he'd had AIDS, as I said, he was very protective and there was a sense of he was my protector in a certain way, as I was to him as well, you know. But then he was gone and I was alone. And it wasn't a, you know, like a absolutely like I have to learn to defend myself in case something happens. But I think in some unconscious way, that's part of what was going on. I had known, you know, done some shadow boxing with my dad as a little boy, but I didn't really know how to defend myself if I got into a fight. So it wasn't a cardio kickboxing kind of fun class, but a real boxing boot camp that I did for six weeks. And I guess muscle systems didn't offer this? No. Or where did you go? No, it was a real, it was a boxing gym um, run by two ex-Golden Glove boxers. Um, it was a serious gym. I, I didn't, I don't think I really knew what I was getting myself into. <laughs> you know, I had this idea that it would kind of feel good to, to hit, like to hit someone, to put on some boxing gloves and hit. And I should say we were padded, you know, and wore gloves and so forth. But what I didn't really think about was that to hit someone meant I was going to get hit back <laughs> and, and hit down and maybe get knocked out and get bloodied. And I did. Um, but I was really proud of the fact I made it through the six weeks. It was super intensive. There was great cardio training as well. We were out running in the streets of San Francisco at 6 a.m., like Rocky going up the steps of City <laughs> Hall. Um, and then back in the um, boxing gym, learning boxing almost like one learns choreography. There was a real elegance to the way they taught combinations and a real rigor in, in performing the combinations correctly. Did you see yourself in a different light at all, like having gone through that experience of, of being hit and also hitting someone as, as hard as you could? What's, what's that do to the sense, to your sense of yourself? Well, you do learn a lot about yourself. Um, I can't say I truly enjoyed it either way. I'm glad I made it through the whole experience. But yeah, I mean, my, my coaches or trainers would get frustrated with me because I clearly had the fitness and the build that I could probably hit really hard, but I just couldn't do it 100%. I just held something back. Um, I think I didn't want to knock someone out, for example. <laughs> I just didn't any more than I wanted to get knocked out myself. But yes, it's um, sort of chronicled in sweat. The next big change you made in your life was at age 48 to move to New York City. Mm -hmm. How soon after that did you and Oliver fall in love? Well, it's a great story. You know, Steve died in 2006. Um, and uh, a couple of years later, I published my book, The Anatomist, which tells the story behind Gray's Anatomy, the classic 19th century anatomy text. And for that book, I spent a year studying anatomy alongside medical students at UCSF. I started out just thinking I'd go to a lecture or two, but I spent a whole year and ended up in the dissection lab with med students going from never having seen a cadaver to doing full cadaver dissection, just like Henry Gray did back in the 19th century. You go all in, Bill Hayes, don't I, you? I go in all in. <laughs> I do. Um, my publisher had sent a copy of the book to Oliver Sacks early on in the publication process, hoping for a blurb. And as I later learned, he got asked to do that all the time. But he did have a copy of the book, and one day 
after the book had been published, he sat down and read it. And then he wrote me a letter. I was still living in San Francisco. I get a letter in the mail, return address, Oliver Sacks, handwritten. Very collegial, just saying, Dear Mr. Hayes, I very much enjoyed your book, The Anatomist. And he told me that both of his parents had been physicians and his two older brothers, so he grew up with a copy of Grey's Anatomy, but he'd never known the story behind the book. So what would you do if you get a letter from Oliver Sacks, whose work I knew, I'd read a couple of his books, I read his profiles in The New Yorker, so I wrote a letter back. And then he let, wrote a letter back to me, and we had a brief correspondence, but it was just collegial. And um, for reasons completely unrelated to Oliver, I later moved to New York City in uh, April 2009. And when I moved to New York, I let him know and looked him up, and we had lunch. And um, I got to tell you, there was, there was instant chemistry. And maybe there was some chemistry in that letter writing, but I don't think I even ever really thought about whether he was gay or straight. I was just, it was just, that was Oliver Sacks, a great writer and um, groundbreaking neurologist. He was much older than you, but mm-hmm. the two of you used to exercise together, work out at the gym, swim together. Tell me about the swimming that you would do together. Where would you go? That was very much part of our relationship and our attraction, I think, to one another. And he was a great swimmer. He had been since he was a baby boy. He was one of those babies where his dad threw him into a pond in London and he learned how to swim. He was a great long-distance swimmer, but also just loved to swim for exercise, to swim laps. So to be in a relationship with Oliver meant that I also had to become a swimmer. (laughs) What was the experience of swimming uh, in Central Park with Mm, him like? mm, Not always so calm. (laughs) Yeah. We swam anywhere we could. So from luxury pools to... Uh, Central Park. It was a blast, to be honest, but crazy. It was like swimming in Times Square. (laughs) It was the height of summer, and uh, there's a big pool in Central Park on the north side of the park, open to the public, um, filled with families and kids and boys cannonballing into the pool. And what is so sweet to me about that memory is seeing Oliver, sure enough, trying to do his laps. You know? <laughs> amidst it all. Yeah, amidst it all. So I was his bodyguard, like, swimming ahead of him, just trying to keep kids and boys out of his way so he could get his half mile in at least. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. So, Bill, Oliver, you know, he was a genius, but he wasn't great at recognising faces. Right. Tell me about the time he mistook someone else for you at the gym. <laughs> the funny thing about this, that story is that I saw it happening. We used to work out at um, a gym in New York together called Equinox and had worked out. And I guess we were in different rows, our lockers or something, and he was ahead of me. And I saw him approaching... A man, a middle-aged man, who also had a shaved head, a buzzed head, and starting to talk to him, and the man just looking confused. (laughs) And I realized that Oliver thought it was me. (laughs) 
<laughs> Oliver could also, you know, mistake himself in a mirror. So, yeah, he, he had a condition called prosopagnosia, which is a real thing. Um, face blindness. And there's a, a whole range of face blindness where you just have a little bit of trouble recognizing faces to having really serious trouble. He was somewhere in the middle. Yeah, he mistook someone else for... Billy Hayes. Yeah, you didn't think he was making a play for someone else. You were, were confident that you were still special you know, I knew in his him well enough and how eccentric <laughs> and neurotic and prosopagnosic, if, if that's a word, that he was, that I was, I was pretty confident. In his early 80s, Oliver got a cancer mm-hmm. diagnosis. Did he continue exercising oh, after yeah, that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, he was diagnosed uh, January 2015. I don't think it interrupted his exercise routine at all. I think we probably went swimming the very next day. Um, it's so interesting because I think a lot of people approach exercise as it's something I do to stay healthy or, you know, to keep young. And look, if I've got this terrible terminal illness, fuck it. I'm not, I'm, yeah. That's one thing I'm not going to do anymore. Why did he keep doing it? Well, it made him feel good. I think, and that's the simplest and best reason to exercise and to find an exercise that does make you feel good, not only physically, but mentally, spiritually, emotionally. A favorite quote of mine is from the second century Roman physician Galen, who said, exercise should exert the body, but also delight the soul. Hmm. So even back in antiquity, they had an understanding that exercise shouldn't necessarily be something you dread, but should give you joy, should delight the soul. So why did Oliver continue exercising? I think it delighted his soul. He loved to swim, and he, in fact composed paragraphs in his mind as he swam, sometimes even kept a notepad by the side of the pool. And he kept going to the gym. We kept going to the gym as long as he was able. And then in his last weeks, you know, he still, he would stride up and down the corridor um, just to keep his body moving. What happened to your exercise routine after (laughs) you lost Oliver? I sort of went south, (laughs) went the other direction, Um, just to lose the second love of my life and um, someone such an important part of my life. It was, you know, it was traumatic and um, I just lost interest. I was depressed and um, going to the swimming pool was just not the same. I mean, it really was fun. It was fun to swim with him. We would do a mile, but we would, you know, stop or rest in between and have a chat. And and we knew the other guys in the locker room, some of whom knew who Dr. Sachs was, but most of whom didn't. I remember well, this was amazing. After Oliver died, you know, there was an outpouring from around the world. People loved Oliver, and Australians especially loved Oliver. But there was an obituary on the front page of the New York Times about Oliver Sacks with his picture. And I do remember I did go back to the gym, but going back to the swimming pool and some of these guys from the locker room stopping me seemed like, that was Oliver Sacks that we used to swim with, then work out with, then, you know, change in the locker room with. He was such a sweet, modest, humble guy. They had no idea of what he had accomplished in his life. I guess, and it's that it's that um, conundrum around exercise, which so many people experience. Like, you don't do it, and you feel crappy, 
And you know, if you do it, you're going to feel better. But mm-hmm. when you haven't done it for a while, it's really hard hard to start again. It's that cycle that people get in and, and that you fell into. What made you decide to start trying to get back into the world of exercise again? Yeah, I really did drop out. <laughs> I really did drop out, stop going to the gym, stop, stop working out, gained weight. Um, well, it was a health concern. I mean, I'm middle-aged and high blood pressure runs in my family. And I went to my doctor, you know, a couple times and he finally said, you know, your blood pressure is just getting too high and put me on some blood pressure meds. Um, but also said, you've got to get back into cardio and, and get your exercise routine going again. And um, I took it seriously. And because you're you, you also started writing a book about the history of exercise right. to kind of go alongside while you were doing this. And one of the people you encountered early on in investigating this subject was a 16th century Italian doctor. Tell me about Girolamo Mercuriale. Very good. <laughs> Very good. Because I had never heard of him before a librarian in New York introduced me to him. I went in and was doing some research and told this librarian doing some research on the history of exercise. And she said, well, surely you've heard of Girolamo Mercuriale. Surely. Surely. (laughs) And De Arte Gymnastica. And I looked up her and said, ah, no, I haven't. And she said, hold on for a second. And she walked back to the rare books room and came back a few minutes later wearing white gloves and holding a pristine first edition of a 1569 book called De Arte Gymnastica. And she put it in front of me with a pair of white gloves. And I opened it up um, to the middle of the book and it opened to an illustration. There was a woodblock engraving of two pairs of naked men wrestling. And I swear, Sarah, in that moment, I just thought, I've got to know what the story is behind this book, behind this man, this whole book. But I turned the page and found that the entire book was written in medieval Latin. Now, I don't read medieval Latin, <laughs> so that was a little dispiriting. But I, um, I just knew I had to find out. So I tracked down an English translation, tracked down the translator himself, and thus started a journey to learn about the life of Mercuriale, who wrote what is considered the first comprehensive book on exercise. And the drawings that you saw there, mm-hmm. you went to an extraordinary <laughs> place to see the originals. Tell me about that about that museum, if that's the right <laughs> word for it. It was magical. It was, it was a time in my life when I was ready to just follow my gut. This is how I write my books, really, and maybe how I live my life, to be honest. The artist was named Piero Ligorio, and he was a kind of friend of Mercuriales who'd fallen on hard times. And it's a longer story, but um, I learned that the drawings themselves, and there are about 16 in the book, still exist, but they're owned by a very wealthy family, uh, the Borromeo family, with a castle, really, a palazzo, uh, on Lake Como, um, on Isla Bella, a small island. I only want to go to libraries that are located on Lake Como. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. Um, How did you get But there? I had heard from others who kind of, because there are academics who kind of specialize in that period and who knew a lot more about Mercuriale and Piero Ligorio than I do, that they had never seen them, that they'd heard that they existed, but they'd never seen them. I just started writing letters and sending emails 
And to my shock, I got an email back one day that said, Dear Mr. Hayes, uh, we'd be happy to have you as a guest. But they only gave me a single date and time in November, and it was like three weeks away, <laughs> to visit this palazzo on Isla Bella. So I just immediately booked a flight to Milan for two or three weeks later. Uh, flew to Milan, dropped my stuff at a hotel, and got in a train, and <laughs> then got on a boat. And through the mist of the fog, there was Isla Bella. Honestly, I'm not making this up. It was magical, um, like a castle peering out of a dream. And, and where were these drawings? In just a, the library of the so castle? So they had a... It, it is a very small island, and there are other buildings on the island, but in the palazzo itself. And these sort of archivist of the family had allowed me, of all people, to visit. And um, he had a key that looked like it was from the Middle Ages, this pewter key. (laughs) He brought me through the palazzo, which, by the way, was completely empty. There were no people in there. And we went into this kind of circular salon. There was a door that I would not have known as a door because it was painted over with a kind of mural. And he put the key in the uh, lock, opened the door, and led me up a spiral staircase to this little attic-like room. And I had to sign a guest book first. And he showed me that one of the visitors, some, what, 60 years earlier, was Ernest Hemingway. Oh, wow. <laughs> he said, you're not the first writer who has visited Palazzo Borromeo. And then he pulled out the drawings by Piero Ligorio, which I had expected might be framed behind glass, but they were essentially free in a manila folder. Manila folder. And I, I did have white gloves to handle them carefully, but I was able to see the original drawings that Ligorio had done for the engravings. And it really was like touching Ligorio and Mercuriale and and being in a time machine back to the 16th century. And this 16th century treatise on exercise, mm-hmm. who was it for, Bill? What, what was the audience of that kind of book? Well, Mercurioli was a physician, so he was writing it from the position of a physician, and um, he was a physician to a cardinal in Rome who was very wealthy, Cardinal Alessandro Farnese, and in that position, Mercurioli had access to the Vatican Library and the Farnese Family Library, and the free time to just explore things that interested him. So exercise really fell into the category of health. And he began looking at treatises by Hippocrates and Galen, as I mentioned, and Plato and others of antiquity. There was a lot of interest at that in that period in the classics. And um, finding recommendations on exercise. And so it was his aim, Mercurioli's aim, to quote, revive the ancient Greek arts of exercise. And of course, as you say, that's part of the bigger Renaissance project of mm-hmm. rediscovering the, the writers and thinkers and ways of living in the ancient world. What did gymnasiums look like in ancient Greece and Rome? Well, as you can imagine, they were made of stone. <laughs> there is a blueprint in... No he- mirrored walls. No mirrored walls. <laughs> oh, yeah. No mirrored walls, that's true. No disco balls. <laughs> no no sound system. Um, but in Mercurioli's book, he has a blueprint of what those gymnasiums were typically like. And to my surprise, there were gyms in most towns in the ancient Greek empire. There were areas for wrestling and boxing. 
there were promenades for walking. There were there was a stadium to watch athletes competing and working out. There were weights. They lifted weights. I should very quickly add these gyms were meant for men and boys, not women and girls, and for men and boys of the upper classes. But a little bit like muscle system, these were also gathering places and places for for men to talk and think and philosophize. You know, to my surprise, Plato himself was an athlete. He was a wrestler, and he competed at one of the four ancient athletic games really? as an athlete at Isthmia. And the name Plato is a nickname coming from Platon because he was so broad-shouldered. So his wrestling coach was calling him Plato as a nickname. <laughs> wow. Why was the, the sweat of athletes collected, mm-hmm. Bill? Yes, this is one that... Some people may get grossed out by the sweat of athletes was considered a prized commodity. There was a belief that it must contain the essence of arete or excellence. And they actually, at that time, created a special instrument called a strigil with which athletes would scrape the sweat and oil off their bodies after exercising or after competing and funnel it into small clay pots. And this presumably very funky smelling <laughs> mixture had a name. It was called Gloyos. And I guess a little cork was put on the top and it was sold. It was sold in gyms as a medicinal supplement. Um, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm sure you'll agree, Sarah. We do a lot of crazy things today or buy crazy supplements that we think are going to help us in one way or the other. I'm sure Goop have a whole line. Of yes, it's very, it's very Goop, actually. <laughs> it's very Goop. I wouldn't be surprised if they're selling strigils as we speak. And if you don't believe it, by the way, many museums like the Met Museum in New York has examples of strigils and the little clay pots that Gloyos was sold in. Mm-hmm. Athletes in the classical world competed naked and you were interested in this <laughs> and how this actually, what this would mean in practice, and you yes. tried it out for yourself. Yeah, why what not? Hap- what happened? I mean, you know, I As do, we say, you go, I do go all in. Um, it's one of those things that we just take for granted. You go to the Met Museum or other great museums and you see amphorae or vases showing athletes wrestling, boxing, competing in the nude. In fact, the word gymnastics means exercising in the nude. That's what it means. And one day it just kind of hit me, did they really do that? <laughs> like At the Olympics or just at gyms in ancient Greece and Rome, did they really exercise in the nude? And if so, for men, how did that work? So I tested that concept. I did it at Oliver's country home. He had a home north of Manhattan with, I will be quick to tell you, Um, A long quarter-mile driveway, uh, the whole place surrounded by a fence and bushes. Um, But what the hell, I didn't care anyway. Uh, So one day I just shucked all my clothes except for my running shoes and ran up and down the quarter-mile driveway to test exactly what that would feel like and if it would work. And it was possible. And it was possible. As I say, to put it most discreetly, um, uh, Nature's own jockstrap. It's 
an image to conjure with, yeah. Bill. Like, did you feel amazingly powerful? Was it like being like a leopard or some yeah. sort of wild animal on the I savannah? Felt, exactly. I felt I, there was something very animalistic and primitive about it. To me, it felt great, but then I love to skinny dip too. So it's, think of it that way. <laughs> In your dedicated tracing of the history of exercise, why did you visit Stockholm? Oh, Stockholm, the Northern Europe, a very important sort of center for a renaissance in exercise, a revival of exercise in the 18th and 19th centuries. A very interesting time because although Mercuriali had aimed to revive the ancient Greek arts of exercise, he didn't exactly succeed. And uh, it wasn't until the 18th and 19th centuries, post-industrial revolution really, that there came to be a renewed interest in exercise and in movement. And uh, it was there that there were various schools for exercise. What I love about that period and, and going to Stockholm and doing research there was that finally women and girls were encouraged and permitted to exercise alongside men and boys. And this is really when the, the idea of group fitness is born. And it's linked very much at that time to a sense of nationalism. Healthy body is a healthy state, um, which could be taken to some very terrible extremes. What did group exercise look like back then? Is there any record of, of what kind of movements people were doing? There is records. It was very highly choreographed. Um, think of, you know, the major, major crowds of people exercising together, even at its worst extreme in Nazi Germany or communist China. So it was meant to sort of sublimate the individual to the larger aims of the nation and the group. And the group fitness exercises were highly choreographed. They were meant to be as perfect as possible, everyone moving synchronously together, dressed exactly alike, um, and, the, and it was calisthenic, so it was, it was also exercise. As you, you say, this is where women and kids start getting included in, in exercise instruction. How did that spread to other countries from its birth in Scandinavia, always leading the way to other parts of the world? Well, there was a university founded that was really the first to focus on exercise science. And um, one of the aims of the university was to train teachers to take these studies and take these forms of exercise to other parts of the world. And uh, so Swedish teachers were hired by the London school system and made their way to America where they opened gyms and taught classes. Um, so it spread around the world through teachers trained at this institute in Stockholm. And then, of course, the story of women and exercise in some ways reaches its apotheosis with Queen Jane. How did Jane Fonda appear <laughs> and, and how do you consider her influence on, on modern sense of exercise? Absolutely. Um, I'm so glad you asked. Jane Fonda, I mean, I grew up in the 70s and 80s and when her books and videos first came out in 1981, 82, 83 and went to those aerobics classes and probably wore those <laughs> those warm-up clothes. <laughs> um, so I approached her and that period with a certain sense of skepticism, um, wondering if it would all seem very campy. And I was delighted to find that 
her exercise routines really did hold up and were very sensible and very well planned. And sort of like me, she had studied anatomy and kinesiology. She wasn't just a mouthpiece. She really did study and know. And she created these classes alongside other experts. And tell me about the the origin or the motivation for Fonda to actually mm-hmm. start wanting to open a gym and then make workouts and sell them. What what was motivating her? Because it's kind of an amazing story. Yeah, she was married at the time to Tom Hayden, who was a kind of radical liberal figure at the time, later became a, a state congressman. And um, he started a nonprofit organization, and they were trying to brainstorm ways to make money um, beyond Jane Fonda's own acting career. And they thought of things like opening a restaurant or opening an auto mechanic shop, which sounds so crazy. (laughs) But by this time, Jane Fonda had started attending very basic kind of early aerobics type classes at a studio in Beverly Hills because she had injured her foot in some production she'd worked on. And she enjoyed it so much. She trained as a ballet dancer as a young woman. Uh, She kept going back and back. And one day it just hit her, why not open her own studio and lead classes? And it started with a studio with Jane Fonda herself leading classes um, and developing routines that are based in science. And then someone approached her about creating a video. She said no. She was an acclaimed actress. She thought it might seem cheap or cheap in her career, but was talked into it, had no idea that it would make the kind of money it did or spread the way it did. And it took off. I mean, what's important about Jane Fonda is she democratized exercise, especially for women, not only for women, but especially for women and not just American women. All around the world. You mean that women didn't have to go to a gym or didn't right. have to pay money for a membership of something? Right. Or get a babysitter for the kids. Or they could do it at home alone um, if they didn't want to be with other people. And Jane Fonda made it fun, you know. And started as a way of fundraising for a radical political organization. Right, which is amazing. (laughs) And it went on to make millions and millions of dollars. And one video followed another after another after another, and one book followed another after another. But she kept changing the routines too. So there were videos and workout books for different stages of people's lives. Is this where music started coming into workouts, Bill? Like, was there a moment where suddenly you exercise with music? Like, I can remember when I started going to yoga 20, Mm -hmm. 25 years ago, there was no music. Now there's always music. Yeah, well, that was very much part of her interest in doing these videos and classes. The early classes she took used music, and um, she wanted to incorporate music into the videos, and it, it made it more fun. And um, another thing I was so impressed by, because I went back and looked at those early videos thinking they're going to be really campy, the group that she assembled for those videos was very diverse. Mm. So it was women and men. It was people of color. It was people of different shapes and sizes. It wasn't just skinny white actresses. And I loved that diversity from the very beginning. And I think that is part of why her videotapes appeal to so many people, such a wide range of people. What's your exercise routine now? How does your muscular gladness Mm. develop at this point in your life? (laughs) Um, Well, my favorite form of exercise is swimming. 
which I do now three times a week. I try to do a mile three times a week. In a pool? In a pool. Although I've been um, on this wonderful tour of Australia, um, such an amazing country, and swam every day in Sydney. I loved swimming in the open sea. <laughs> went to Bondi, icebergs, um, went to various beaches. Um, so that kind of swimming is really fun as well. I do still work out at the gym, though not as heavily as I did when I was 15, certainly, or even when I was 30, but just to, you know, keep in shape. And I walk a lot. I'm a New Yorker, so I walk a lot. And um, I think especially during the pandemic, I came to appreciate again how good walking is as a form of exercise, something I had really taken for granted, I think, before. From the way you're describing it, it sounds like exercise is a way that you've been in relationship with your body right from a young age. Yeah, yeah. I say it's just in my DNA in some way, that desire to move and and just to appreciate your body. You know, we are uniquely built as human beings to move, to move the way that we do. We are animals and there are other bipedal animals that can walk on two legs, but not move, walk and run the way that human beings can. So if you can run and you enjoy it, run and enjoy it for how it makes you feel now. That's what I tell people. Don't exercise because you think it will make you live a lot longer life. You never know. And I've certainly learned that in my life. You can go to bed one night and find your partner gone the next day. Exercise for how it makes you feel now. Phil, thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Bill Hayes was my guest on Conversations today, and Bill's book about exercise is called Sweat. Thanks to the only slightly sweaty Conversations team, executive producer Carmel Rooney and producers Maggie Morris, Nicola Harrison and Sinead Lee. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Attention, passengers. Uh, Hello, Conversations listeners. Jonathan Green here from RN's Return Ticket. On our show, we take you on Journeys of the Mind, no passport required. We'll chat with some fine guides in destinations you'd love to travel to. Come travel with us here on Return Ticket. You'll find all the episodes on the ABC Listen app.